Hello and welcome to episode 13. In today's episode, we will be discussing diabetic neuropathy. In our scenario for today, we have a 60-year-old female with type 2 diabetes. She's on glargine and metformin for the last 10 years and her A1C is 7%. She's reporting new onset tingling and numbness in the lower extremities. Foot exam reveals reduced monofilament sensation and reduced ankle reflex. What is the best next step? Start gabapentin at bedtime, perform nerve conduction studies, escalate diabetic therapy, or check vitamin B12. And the correct answer is vitamin B12. This patient has type 2 diabetes and has a typical presentation of distal symmetrical sensory neuropathy. About 50% of patients with type 2 diabetes will develop neuropathy within 10 years of the diagnosis. Diabetic neuropathy is a diagnosis of exclusion. And as per the ADA position statement on diabetic neuropathy in 2017, it's important to consider ruling out other causes of neuropathy, such as vitamin B12 deficiency, hypothyroidism, renal disease, and multiple myeloma, amongst others. Specifically, long-term metformin use has been associated with vitamin B12 deficiency for an unclear reason, and this provides an even more incentive to rule it out in this specific patient. She does not need nerve conduction studies, as they are only necessary in atypical presentations of neuropathy, such as unilateral or quickly progressive neuropathy, or those involving motor symptoms. In terms of physiology, we have different types of sensory nerves, which carry different nerve signals, such as pain, light touch, vibration, and proprioception, from the skin and the joints to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. These nerve fibers are very long, about 20,000 times longer than their actual cell bodies. The cell bodies of these neurons are located in the dorsal root ganglia, a lot of sensory axons are thin and not myelinated, especially the C-fibers or the small fibers which carry pain and temperature and light touch sensation. And the fact that they are not myelinated and long makes them vulnerable to damage. The large myelinated sensory neurons, those that carry vibration and proprioception, can also be affected. Unlike sensory neurons, the motor neurons are myelinated and they relay signals from the spinal cord to the muscles and their cell bodies are actually residing in the ventral horn of the spinal cord itself, which makes them less vulnerable to damage. In normal conditions, there is a constant process of neuronal damage and repair to keep things neutral. In terms of pathophysiology, what happens in diabetes is that there is a change in metabolic and vascular factors that shifts this balance in favor of more damage. For example, typically the mitochondria must travel down the length of the axon to provide energy to the most distal ends of the axon. And with the oxidative damage and the ischemic insults that can happen in diabetes and their resulting inflammation, the cell body and the mitochondrial trafficking pathway are both disrupted, and this results in bioenergetic failure. This most commonly affects the distal ends of nerves, which are most vulnerable to this damage. 
This occurs in a fiber-selective pattern, meaning that the most vulnerable nerves, the longest and the non-myelinated fibers, are preferentially affected. The end result is something called dying back axonopathy, affecting the distal portions of the sensory nervous system, and then later the autonomic nervous system with relative sparing of the motor system. This results in the most common form of diabetic neuropathy called distal symmetric polyneuropathy, which affects the glove and stocking distribution. Typically, by the time neuropathy has reached the mid coughs it starts to affect the upper extremities. The earliest manifestations are related to the disruption of the small myelinated nerve fibers which carry light touch, pain, and temperature, as well as the large myelinated fibers which carry proprioception and vibration. Now, in diabetic polyneuropathy, up to half the patients may not even know they have it. So half the patients can be asymptomatic. Symptoms can be either negative, related to loss of the neuron, causing reduced sensation, or they can be positive, meaning that there is abnormal activity of the remaining damaged nerves, causing tingling and pain. Damage of small nerve fibers results in burning, tingling, or shooting pain, usually occurring with paresthesia, typically worse at night, while involvement of large nerve fibers usually results in numbness, tingling, but without pain, and loss of proprioceptive sensation. As the disease advances to include motor neuropathy, foot deformities start to arise, partially related to the loss of structural muscle support and flexion deformities. In terms of screening, because neuropathy is so common, screening should begin as soon as type 2 diabetes is diagnosed or five years after type 1 diabetes is diagnosed. Screening should be performed with a complete history and a foot exam. To assess for small fiber function, we can check pinprick and temperature sensation in the lower extremities. And to check the large fiber function, we can measure vibration sensation with a 128 Hz tuning fork, proprioception using the joint location, light touch using a 10 gram monofilament, and ankle reflexes. Diagnosis can be made based on physical exam alone or a combination between symptoms and physical exam. To clarify and standardize the neuropathy diagnosis, which can vary amongst physicians, Several standardized screening tools have been created, such as the Michigan Neuropathy Screening Instrument, the Utah Early Neuropathy Scale, and the UK Screening Test, which have a history, subjective portion from the patient, and an objective physical exam portion from the physician. In these instruments, at a specific threshold of points based on the history and physical exam, a diagnosis of neuropathy could be made. Now, it's important to note that there are no curative treatments for diabetic neuropathy. Strict glycemic control may halt or delay the progression of diabetic neuropathy. Pharmacotherapy is aimed at alleviating symptoms and improving the quality of life. There are three main medication classes that can be used, and each have been shown in randomized controlled trials to be more effective than placebo, and they generally have similar efficacies. One class is the GABA 
pentenoids, anti-seizure medications such as the gabapentin and pregabalin. The second class is the tricyclic antidepressants such as amitriptyline, decipramine, and nortriptyline. And the third class is the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors such as the duloxetine and venlafaxin. Only two of these medications have actually been FDA-approved for treatment of diabetic neuropathy, and these are the duloxetine and pregabalin. Selection of agents should be done based on patient characteristics. When a medication is used, it should be started as part of a three-month trial to optimize the dose and evaluate the patient's response. When a drug class fails or cannot be tolerated, another class can be used. For those who fail all three classes, then second-line therapies can be tried, such as the capsaicin cream, lidocaine patch, alpha-lipoid acid, or transcutaneous nerve stimulation. And this concludes our episode on diabetic neuropathy. In the next episode, we will be discussing skin conditions associated with diabetes. Thank you for listening.